Section 3 of Meet Mr. Mulliner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Hutchison. Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. Section 3. Mulliner's Bucca-Uppo. The Village Choral Society had been giving a performance of Gilbert and Sullivan's Sorcerer in aid of the church organ fund, and as we sat in the window of the Angler's Rest, smoking our pipes, the audience came streaming past us down the little street. Snatches of song floated to our ears, and Mr. Mulliner began to croon in unison. Ah, me, I was a pale young curate then chanted Mr. Mulliner in the rather snuffling voice in which the old amateur singer seems to find it necessary to render the old songs. Remarkable, he said, resuming his natural tones, how fashions change, even in clergymen. There are very few pale young curates nowadays. True, I agreed. Most of them are beefy young fellows who rode for their colleges, I don't believe I've ever seen a pale young curate. You never met my nephew Augustine, I think. Never. The description in the song would have fitted him perfectly. You'll want to hear all about my nephew Augustine. At the time of which I am speaking, said Mr. Mulliner, my nephew Augustine was a curate, very young and extremely pale. As a boy, he had completely outgrown his strength and I rather think at his theological college some of the wilder spirits must have bullied him. For when he went to lower brisket in the midden to assist the vicar, the Reverend Stanley Brandon, in his cure of souls, he was as meek and mild a young man as you could meet in a day's journey. He had flaxen hair, weak blue eyes, and the general demeanor of a saintly but timid codfish. Precisely, in short, the sort of young curate who seems to have been so common in the eighties, or whenever it was that Gilbert wrote The Sorcerer. The personality of his immediate superior did little or nothing to help him to overcome his native diffidence. The Reverend Stanley Brandon was a huge and sinewy man of violent temper, whose red face and glittering eyes might well have intimidated the toughest curate. The Reverend Stanley had been a heavyweight boxer at Cambridge, and I gather from Augustine that he seemed to always be on the point of introducing into debates on parish matters the method which had made him so successful in the rope ring. I remember Augustine telling me once, on the occasion when he had ventured to oppose the other's views in the matter of decorating the church for the harvest festival, he thought for a moment that the vicar was going to drop him with a right hook to the chin. It was quite some trivial point that had come up, a question as to whether the pumpkin would look better in the apse or the clerestory, if I recall rightly, but for several seconds it seemed as if blood was about to be shed. Such was the Reverend Stanley Brandon. And yet it was to the daughter of this formidable man that Augustine Milliner had permitted himself to lose his heart. Truly, Cupid makes heroes of us all. Jane was a very nice girl, and just as fond of Augustine as he was of her, but as each lacked the nerve to go to the girl's father and put him abreast of the position of affairs, they were forced to meet surreptitiously. This jarred upon Augustine, 
who, like all the Molyneurs, loved the truth and hated any form of deception. And one evening, as they paced beside the laurels at the bottom of the vicarage garden, he rebelled. "'My dearest,' said Augustine, "'I can no longer brook this secrecy. I shall go into the house immediately and ask your father for your hand.' Jane paled and clung to his arm. She knew so well that it was not her hand, but her father's foot, which he would receive if he carried out this mad scheme. No, no, Augustine, you must not. But, darling, it is the only straightforward course. But not tonight. I, I beg of you, not tonight. Why not? Because father is in a very bad temper. He's just had a letter from the bishop, rebuking him for wearing too many orphreys on his chasuble, and it has upset him terribly. You see, he and the bishop were at school together, and father can never forget it. He said at dinner that if old Boko Bickerton thought he was going to order him about, he would jolly well show him. And the bishop comes here tomorrow for the confirmation services, gasped Augustine. Yes, and I'm so afraid they will quarrel. It's such a pity father has some other bishop over him. He always remembers that he hit this one in the eye for pouring ink on his collar, and this lowers his respect for his spiritual authority. So, you won't go in and tell him tonight, will you? I will not, Augustine assured her with a slight shiver. And you will be sure to put your feet in hot mustard and water when you get home? The dew has made the grass so wet. I will indeed, dearest. You are not strong, you know. No, I am not strong. You ought to really take some good tonic. Perhaps I ought. Good night, Jane. Good night, Augustine. The lovers parted. Jane slipped back into the vicarage, and Augustine made his way to his cozy rooms in the high street. And the first thing he noticed on entering was a parcel on the table, and beside it, a letter. He opened it listlessly, his thoughts far away. My dear Augustine, he turned to the last page and glanced at the signature. The letter was from his Aunt Angela, the wife of my brother, Wilfred Mulliner. You may remember that I once told you the story of how these two came together. If so, you will recall that my brother Wilfred was the eminent chemical researcher who had invented, among other specifics, such world-famous preparations as Mulliner's Raven Gypsy Face Cream and the Mulliner Snow of the Mountains Lotion. He and Augustine had never been particularly intimate, but between Augustine and his aunt there had always existed a warm friendship. My dear Augustine, wrote Angela Mulliner, I have been thinking so much about you lately, and I cannot forget that, when I saw you last, you seemed very fragile and deficient in vitamins. I hope you take care of yourself. I have been feeling for some time that you ought to take a tonic, and by a lucky chance Wilfred has just invented one, which he tells me is the finest thing he has ever done. It is called buck a uppo and acts directly on the red corpuscles. It is not yet on the market, but I have managed to smuggle a sample bottle from Wilfred's laboratory, and I want you to try it at once. I am sure it is just what you need. Your affectionate aunt, Angela Mulliner. P.S. You take a tablespoonful before going to bed, and another just before breakfast. Augustine was not an unduly superstitious young man. But the coincidence of this tonic arriving so soon after Jane had told him that a tonic was what he needed affected him deeply. 
It seemed to him that this thing must have been meant. He shook the bottle, uncorked it, pouring out a liberal tablespoonful, he shut his eyes and swallowed it. The medicine, he was glad to find, was not unpleasant to the taste. It had a slightly pungent flavor, rather like old boot soles beaten up in sherry. Having taken the dose, he read for a while on a book of theological essays and then went to bed. And as his feet slipped between the sheets, he was annoyed to find that Mrs. Wardle, his housekeeper, had once more forgotten his hot water bottle. Oh, dash, said Augustine. He was thoroughly upset. He had told the woman over and over again that he suffered from cold feet and he could not get to sleep unless the dogs were properly warmed up. He sprang out of bed and went to the head of the stairs. Mrs. Wardle, he cried. There was no reply. Mrs. Wardle, bellowed Augustine in a voice that rattled the window panes like a strong nor'easter. Until tonight, he had been very much afraid of his housekeeper and had both walked and talked softly in her presence. But now he was conscious of a strange new fortitude. His head was singing a little, and he felt equal to a dozen Mrs. Wardles. Shuffling footsteps made themselves heard. Well, what is it now? asked a careless voice. Augustine snorted. I'll tell you what it is now, he roared. How many times have I told you to always put a hot water bottle in my bed? You've forgotten it again, you old clothhead. Mrs. Wardle peered up, astounded and militant. Mr. Mulliner, I am not accustomed to... Shut up, thundered Augustine. What I want from you is less back chat and more hot water bottles. Bring it up at once or I leave tomorrow. Let me endeavor to get it into your concrete skull that you aren't the only person letting rooms in this village. Any more lip and I walk straight around the corner, where I'll be appreciated. Hot water bottle, ho, and look slippy about it. Yes, Mr. Mulliner, certainly, Mr. Mulliner. In one moment, Mr. Mulliner. Action, action, boomed Augustine. Show some speed, put a little snap into it. Yes, yes, most decidedly, Mr. Mulliner, replied the chastened voice from below. An hour later, as he was dropping off to sleep, a thought crept into Augustine's mind. Had he not been a little brusque with Mrs. Wardle? Had there not been in his manner something a shade abrupt, almost rude? Yes, he decided regretfully, there had. He lit a candle and reached for the diary which lay on the table at his bedside. He made an entry. The meek shall inherit the earth. Am I sufficiently meek? I wonder. This evening, when approaching Mrs. Wardle, my worthy housekeeper, for omitting to place a hot water bottle in my bed, I spoke quite crossly. The provocation was severe, but still I was surely to blame for allowing my passions to run riot. Mem. Must guard against this. But when he woke up the next morning, different feelings prevailed. He took his anti-breakfast dose of buck a uppo and looking at the entry in the diary, could scarcely believe that it was he who had written it. Quite cross. Well, of course he had been quite cross. Wouldn't anybody be quite cross who was ever being persecuted by beetle wits who forgot hot water bottles? Erasing the words with one strong dash of a thick-leaded pencil, he scribbled in the margin a hasty mashed potatoes, serve the old idiot right, and went down to breakfast. He felt most amazingly fit. Undoubtedly, in asserting that this tonic of his acted forcefully upon the red corpuscles, his uncle Wilfred had been right. 
Until that moment, Augustine had never supposed that he had any red corpuscles. But now, as he sat waiting for Mrs. Wardle to bring him his fried egg, he could feel them dancing about all over him. They seemed to be forming rowdy parties and sliding down his spine. His eyes sparkled, and from sheer joy of living he sang a few bars from the hymn for those of riper years at sea. He was still singing when Mrs. Wardle entered with a dish. "'What's this?' demanded Augustine, eyeing it dangerously. "'A nice fried egg, sir. "'And what, pray, do you mean by nice? "'It may be an amiable egg. "'It may be a civil, well-meaning egg. "'But if you think it is fit for human consumption, "'adjust that impression. "'Go back to your kitchen, woman, select another, "'and remember this time that you are a cook, "'not an incinerating machine.' Between an egg that is fried and an egg that is cremated, there is a wide and substantial difference. This difference, if you wish to retain me as a lodger in these far too expensive rooms, you will endeavor to appreciate. The glowing sense of well-being with which Augustine had begun the day did not diminish with the passage of time. It seemed, indeed, to increase. So full of effervescing energy did the young man feel that, Departing from his usual custom of spending the morning crouched over the fire, he picked up his hat, stuck it at a rakish angle on his head, and sallied out for a healthy tramp across the fields. It was while he was returning, flushed and rosy, that he observed a sight which is rare in the county districts of England, the spectacle of a bishop running. It is not often in a place like Lower Brisket in the Midden that you see a bishop at all, and when you do, he is either riding in a stately car or pacing at a dignified walk. This one was sprinting like a derby winner, and Augustine paused to drink in the sight. The bishop was a large, burly bishop, built for endurance rather than speed, but he was making excellent going. He flashed past Augustine in a whirl of flying gaiters, and then, proving himself thereby no mere specialist but a versatile all-around athlete, suddenly dived for a tree and climbed into its branches. His motive, Augustine readily divined, was to elude a rough, hairy dog which was toiling in his wake. The dog reached the tree a moment after his quarry had climbed it and stood there, barking. Augustine strolled up. Having a little trouble with the dumb friend, Bish? he asked genially. The bishop peered down from his eerie. Young man, he said. Save me. Right most indubitably ho, replied Augustine. Leave it to me. Until today he had always been terrified of dogs, but now he did not hesitate. Almost quicker than words can tell, he picked up a stone, discharged it at the animal, and whooped cheerily as it got home with a thud. The dog, knowing when he had had enough, removed himself at some 45 mph, and the bishop, descending cautiously, clasped Augustine's hand in his. My preserver, said the bishop. Don't give it another thought, said Augustine cheerily. Always glad to do a pal a good turn. We clergymen must stick together. I thought he had me there for a minute. Yeah, quite a nasty customer, full of rude energy. The bishop nodded. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Deuteronomy 34.7, he agreed. I wonder if you can direct me to the vicarage. I fear I have come a little out of my way. I'll take you there. 
Thank you. Perhaps it would be as well if you did not come in. I have a serious matter to discuss with old Pieface. I, I mean, with the Reverend Stanley Brandon. I have a serious matter to discuss with his daughter. I'll just hang about the garden. You are a very excellent young man, said the bishop, as they walked along. You are a curate, eh? At present, but, said Augustine, tapping his companion on the chest, just watch my smoke. That's all I ask you to do. Just watch my smoke. I will. You should rise to great heights, to the very top of the tree. Like you did just now, eh? Ha ha! Ha ha! said the bishop. You young rogue. He poked Augustine in the ribs. Ha ha ha! said Augustine. He slapped the bishop on the back. But all joking aside, said the bishop as they entered the vicarage grounds, I really shall keep my eye on you and see that you receive the swift preferment which your talents and character deserve. I say to you, my dear young friend, speaking seriously and weighing my words, that the way you picked that dog off with that stun was the smoothest thing I ever saw, and I am a man who always tells the strict truth. Great is truth and mighty above all things. Esdras 4.41, said Augustine. He turned away and strolled toward the laurel bushes, which were his customary meeting place with Jane. The bishop went on to the front door and rang the bell. Although they had made no definite appointment, Augustine was surprised when the minutes passed and no Jane appeared. He did not know that she had been told off by her father to entertain the bishop's wife that morning and show her the sights of Lower Brisket in the Midden. He waited some quarter of an hour with growing impatience and was about to leave when suddenly from the house there came to his ears the sound of voices raised angrily. He stopped. The voices appeared to proceed from a room on the ground floor facing the garden. Running lightly over the turf, Augustine paused outside the window and listened. The window was open at the bottom, and he could hear quite distinctly. The vicar was speaking in a voice that vibrated through the room. Uh, is that so? said the vicar. Yes, it is, said the bishop. Ha ha! Ha ha to you, and see how you like it, rejoined the bishop with spirit. Augustine drew a step closer. It was plain that Jane's fears had been justified and that there was serious trouble afoot between these two old schoolfellows. He peeped in. The vicar, his hands behind his coattails, was striding up and down the carpet, while the bishop, his back to the fireplace, glared defiance at him from the hearthrug. "'Whoever told you you were an authority on chasubles?' demanded the vicar. "'That's all right who told me,' rejoined the bishop. "'I don't believe you know what a chasuble is.' "'Is that so?' "'Well, what is it, then?' "'It's a circular cloak hanging from the shoulders, elaborately embroidered with a pattern and with orphreys. And you can argue as much as you like, young pie-face, but you can't get away from the fact that there are too many orphreys on yours. And what I'm telling you is that you've jolly well got to switch off a few of these orphreys or you'll get in the neck. The vicar's eyes glittered furiously. Is that so, he said. Well, I just won't. So there. And it's like your cheek coming here and trying to high-hat me. You seem to have forgotten that I knew you when you were an inky-faced kid at school, and that, if I liked, I could tell the world one or two things about you which you'd probably amuse it. My past is an open book. Is it? Ha! The vicar laughed malevolently. Who put the white mouse in the French master's desk? The bishop started. 
Who put jam in the dormitory prefect's bed, he reported. Who couldn't keep his collar clean? Who used to wear a dickie? The bishop's wonderful organ-like voice, whose softest whisper could be heard throughout a vast cathedral, rang out in a tone of thunder. Who was sick at the house supper? The vicar quavered from head to foot. His rubicund face turned a deeper crimson. You know jolly well, he said in shaking accents, that there was something wrong with the turkey. Might have upset anyone. The only thing wrong with the turkey was that you ate too much of it. If you had paid as much attention to developing your soul as you did to developing your tummy, you might by now, said the bishop, have risen to my own eminence. Oh, might I? No, perhaps I am wrong. You never had the brain. The vicar uttered another discordant laugh. Brain is good. We know all about your eminence, as you call it, and how you rose to that eminence. What do you mean? You're a bishop. How you became one, we will not inquire. What do you mean? What I say, we will not inquire. Why don't you inquire? Because, said the vicar, it is better not. The bishop's self-control left him. His face contorted with fury. He took a step forward, and simultaneously Augustine sprang lightly into the room. Now, 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 said Augustine. Now, now. Now, now, now. The two men stood transfixed. They stared at the intruder dumbly. Come, come, said Augustine. The vicar was the first to recover. He glowered at Augustine. What do you mean by jumping through my window, he thundered. Are you a curate or a harlequin? Augustine met his gaze with an unfaltering eye. I am a curate, he replied, with a dignity that well became him. And as a curate, I cannot stand by and see two superiors of the cloth, who are, moreover, old schoolfellows, forgetting themselves. It isn't right. Absolutely not right, my old superiors of the cloth. The vicar bit his lip. The bishop bowed his head. Listen, proceeded Augustine, placing a hand on the shoulder of each, I hate to see you two dear good chaps quarreling like this. He started it said the vicar solemnly. Never mind who started it. Augustine silenced the bishop with a curt gesture as he made to speak. Be sensible, my dear fellows. Respect the decencies of debate. Exercise a little good-humored give-and-take. You say, he went on, turning to the bishop, that our good friend here has too many orphreys on his chasuble? I do, and stick to it. Yes, 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 but what, said Augustine, soothingly, are a few orphreys between friends? Reflect. You and our worthy vicar here were at school together. You're bound by the sacred ties of the old alma mater. With him you sported on the green. With him you shared a crib and, and threw inked darts in the hour supposed to be devoted to the study of French. Do these things mean nothing to you? Do these memories touch no chord? He turned appealingly from one to the other. Vicar! Bish! The vicar had moved away and was wiping his eyes. The bishop fumbled for a pocket handkerchief. There was silence. Sorry, pie-face, said the bishop in a choking voice. Shouldn't have spoken as I did, Boko, mumbled the vicar. 
If you want to know what I think, said the bishop, you are right in attributing your indisposition at the house supper to something wrong with the turkey. I recollect saying at the time that the bird should never have been served in such a condition. And when you put that white mouse in the French master's desk, said the vicar, you performed one of the noblest services to humanity of which there is any record. They ought to have made you a bishop on the spot. Pie face. Boko. The two men clasped hands. Splendid, said Augustine. Everything hotsy-totsy now? Quite, quite, said the vicar. As far as I'm concerned, completely hotsy-totsy, said the bishop. He turned to his old friend solicitously. You will continue to wear all the orphreys you want. Will you not, Pieface? No, no, I, I see now that I was wrong. From now on, Boko, I abandon orphreys altogether. But, Pieface, it's all right, the vicar assured him. I can take them or leave them alone. Splendid fellow, the bishop coughed to hide his emotion, and there was a silence. I think perhaps, he went on after a pause, I should be leaving you now, my dear chap, and going in search of my wife. She's with your daughter, I believe, somewhere in the village. They're coming up the drive now. Ah, yes, I see them. A charming girl, your daughter. Augustine clapped him on the shoulder. Bish, he exclaimed, you said a mouthful. She is the dearest, sweetest girl in the world. And I should be glad, Vicar, if you would give your consent to our immediate union. I love Jane with a good man's fervor, and I'm happy to inform you that my sentiments are returned. Assure us, therefore, of your approval, and I will go at once and have the bands put up. The vicar leaped as though he had been stung. Like so many vicars, he had a poor opinion of curates, and he had always regarded Augustine as rather below him than above the general norm or level of the despised class. What? he cried. A most excellent idea, said the bishop, beaming. A very happy notion, I call it. My daughter, the vicar seemed dazed, my daughter marry a curate? You were a curate once yourself, Pieface. Yes, but not a curate like that. No, said the bishop, you were not, nor was I. Better for us both had we been. This young man, I would have you know, is the most outstandingly excellent young man I have ever encountered. Are you aware that scarcely an hour ago he saved me with the most consummate address from a large shaggy dog with black spots and a kink in his tail? I was sorely pressed by face when this young man came up, and with the readiness of resource and an accuracy of aim, which it would be impossible to overpraise, got that dog in the short ribs with a rock and sent him flying. The vicar seemed to be struggling with some powerful emotion. His eyes had widened. A dog with black spots? Very black spots. But no blacker, I fear, than the heart they hid. And he really plugged him in the short ribs? As far as I could see, squarely in the short ribs. The vicar held out his hand. Mulliner, he said, I was not aware of this. In the light of the facts which have just been drawn to my attention, I have no hesitation in saying that my objections are removed. I have had it in for that dog since the second Sunday before Septuagesima, when he pinned me by the ankle as I paced by the river, composing a sermon on certain alarming manifestations of the so-called modern spirit. Take Jane. 
I give my consent freely. And may she be as happy as any girl with such a husband ought to be. A few more affecting words were exchanged, and then the bishop and Augustine left the house. The bishop was silent and thoughtful. I owe you a good deal, Mulliner, he said at length. Oh, I don't know, said Augustine. Would you say that? A very great deal. You saved me from a terrible disaster. Had you not leaped through that window at that precise juncture and intervened, I really believe I should have pasted my dear old friend Brandon in the eye. I was sorely exasperated. Our good vicar can be trying at times, agreed Augustine. My fist was already clenched, and I was just hauling off for the swing when you checked me. What the result would have been, had you not exhibited attack and discretion beyond your years, I do not like to think. I might have been unfrocked. He shivered at the thought, though the weather was mild. I could never have shown my face at the Athenaeum again. But, tut-tut, went on the bishop, patting Augustine on the shoulder, let us not dwell on what might have been. Speak to me of yourself, the vicar's charming daughter. You really love her? I do indeed. The bishop's face had grown grave. Think well, Mulliner, he said. Marriage is a serious affair. Do not plunge into it without due reflection. I myself am a husband, and though singularly blessed in the possession of a devoted helpmeet, cannot but feel sometimes that a man is better off as a bachelor. Women, Mulliner, are odd. True, said Augustine. My own dear wife is the best of women, and, as I never weary of saying, a good woman is a wondrous creature, cleaving to the right and the good under all change, lovely and youthful comeliness, lovely all her life and comeliness of heart, and yet, and yet, said Augustine. The bishop mused for a moment. He wriggled a little with an expression of pain and scratched himself between the shoulder blades. Well, I'll tell you, said the bishop. It is a warm and pleasant day today, is it not? Exceptionally clement, said Augustine. A fair, sunny day, made gracious by a temperate westerly breeze. And yet, Mulliner, if you will credit my statement, my wife insisted on my putting on my thick winter woolies this morning. Truly, sighed the bishop, as a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. So is a fair woman which is without discretion. Proverbs eleven twenty one. Twenty two, corrected Augustine. I should have said twenty two. They are made of thick flannel, and I have an exceptionally sensitive skin. Oblige me, my dear fellow, by rubbing me in the small of the back with the ferrule of your stick. I think it will ease the irritation. But my poor dear old bish said Augustine sympathetically. This must not be. The bishop shook his head ruefully. You would not speak so heartily, Mulliner, if you knew my wife. There is no appeal from her decrees. Nonsense, cried Augustine, cheerily. He looked through the trees to where the lady bishopess, escorted by Jane, was examining a lobelia through her lorgnette with just the right blend of cordiality and condescension. I'll fix that for you in a second. The bishop clutched at his arm. My boy, what are you going to do? 
I'm just going to have a word with your wife and put the matter up to her like a reasonable woman. Thick winter woolies on a day like this. Absurd, said Augustine. Preposterous. I never heard such rot. The bishop gazed after him with a laden heart. He had already come to love this young man like a son, and to see him charging so light-heartedly into the very jaws of destruction afflicted him with a deep and poignant sadness. He knew what his wife was like when even the highest in the land attempted to thwart her, and this brave lad was but a curate. In another moment she would be looking at him through her lorgnette, and England was littered with the shriveled remains of curates at whom the Lady Bishopess had looked through her lorgnette. He had seen them wilt like salted slugs at the Episcopal breakfast table. He held his breath. Augustine had reached the Lady Bishopess, and the Lady Bishopess was even now raising her lorgnette. The bishop shut his eyes and turned away. And then, years afterward, it seems to him, a cheery voice hailed him, and turning, he perceived Augustine bounding back through the trees. It's all right, Bish, said Augustine. All right, faltered the bishop. Yes, she says you could go and change into the thin cashmere. The bishop reeled. But, but, but what did you say to her? What arguments did you employ? Oh, I just pointed out what a warm day it was, and jollied her along a bit. Jollied her along a bit. And she agreed in the most friendly and cordial manner. She asked me to call at the palace one of these days. The bishop seized Augustine's hand. My boy, he said in a broken voice, you shall do more than call at the palace. You shall come and live at the palace. Become my secretary, Mulliner, and name your own salary. If you intend to marry, you will require an increased stipend. Become my secretary, boy, and, and never leave my side. I have needed somebody like you for years. It was late in the afternoon when Augustine returned to his rooms, for he had been invited to lunch at the vicarage and had been the life and soul of the cheery little party. A letter for you, sir, said Mrs. Wardle, obsequiously. Augustine took the letter. I'm sorry to say I shall be leaving you shortly, Mrs. Wardle. Oh, sir, if there's anything I can do... Oh, no, no, it's not that. The fact is the bishop has made me his secretary, and I shall have to shift my toothbrush and spats to the palace, you see. Well, fancy that, sir. Why, you'll be a bishop yourself one of these days. Possibly, said Augustine, possibly. And now let me read this. He opened the letter. A thoughtful frown appeared on his face as he read. My dear Augustine, I am writing in some haste to tell you that the impulsiveness of your aunt has led to a rather serious mistake. She tells me that she dispatched to you yesterday by parcels post a sample bottle of my new buck oppo which she obtained without my knowledge from my laboratory. Had she mentioned what she was intending to do, I could have prevented a very unfortunate occurrence. Muller's bucca oppo is of two grades or qualities, the A and the B. The A is a mild but strengthening tonic designed for human invalids. The B, on the other hand, is purely for circulation in the animal kingdom and was invented to fill a long-felt want throughout our Indian possessions. 
As you are doubtless aware, the favorite pastime of the Indian Maharajas is the hunting of the tiger of the jungle from the backs of elephants. And it has happened frequently in the past that hunts have been spoiled by the failure of the elephant to see eye to eye with its owner in the matter of what constitutes sport. Too often, elephants, on sighting the tiger, have turned and galloped home. And it was to correct this tendency on their part that I invented Mulliner's Bucca Up OB. One teaspoonful of the Bucca Up OB administered in the morning bran mash will cause the most timid elephant to trumpet loudly and charge the fiercest tiger without a qualm. Abstain, therefore, from taking any of the contents of the bottle you now possess. And believe me, your affectionate uncle, Wilfred Mulliner. Augustine remained for some time in deep thought after perusing this communication. Then, rising, he whistled a few bars of the psalm appointed for the 26th of June and left the room. Half an hour later, a telegraphic message was speeding over the wires. It ran as follows. Wilfred Molliner, The Gables, Lesser Lossingham, Solop. Letter received. Send immediately, COD, three cases of the bee. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Deuteronomy 28.5, Augustine. End of section three. Section 4 of Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. Read by James Hutchison. Section 4. The Bishop's Move. Another Sunday was drawing to a close, and Mr. Mulliner had come into the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest, wearing on his head, in place of the seedy old wide-awake, which usually adorned it, a glistening top hat. From this, combined with the sober black of his costume and the rather devout voice in which he ordered hot scotch and lemon, I deduced that he had been attending Evensong. "'Good sermon?' I asked. "'Quite good.' The new curate preached. He seems a nice young fellow. Speaking of curates, I said, I've often wondered what became of your nephew, the one you were telling me about the other day. Augustine? The fellow who took the bucca uppo. That was Augustine. And I am pleased, and not a little touched, said Mr. Mulliner, beaming, that you should have remembered the trivial anecdote which I related. In this self-centered world, what does not always find such a sympathetic listener to one's stories. Let's see, where did we leave Augustine? He had just become the bishop's secretary and gone to live at the palace. Ah, yes. We will take up his career, then, some six months after the date which you have indicated. It was the custom of the good bishop of Stortford, for like all the prelates of our church he loved his labors, to embark upon the duties of the day, said Mr. Mulliner, in a cheerful and jocund spirit. 
usually as he entered his study to dispatch such business as might have arisen from the correspondence which had reached the palace by the first post, there was a smile upon his face, and possibly upon his lips a snatch of some gay psalm. But on the morning on which this story begins, an observer would have noted that he wore a preoccupied, even a somber look. Reaching the study door, he hesitated as if reluctant to enter, then, pulling himself together with a visible effort, he turned the handle. "'Good morning, Mulliner, my boy,' he said. His manner was noticeably embarrassed. Augustine glanced brightly up from the pile of letters which he was opening. "'Cheerio, Bish. How's the lumbago today?' "'I find the pain sensibly diminished. Thank you, Mulliner. In fact, almost non-existent. This pleasant weather seems to do me good.' For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in the land. Song of Solomon 2, 11, 12. Good work, said Augustine. Well, there's nothing much of interest in these letters so far. The vicar of St. Beowulf's in the west wants to know how about incense. Tell him they mustn't, right-ho? The bishop stroked his chin uneasily. He seemed to be nerving himself for some unpleasant task. Mulliner, he said, hello. Your mention of the word vicar provides a cue, which I must not ignore, for alluding to a matter which you and I had under advisement yesterday, the matter of the vacant living of steeple mummery. Yes, said Augustine eagerly. Do I click? A spasm of pain passed across the bishop's face. He shook his head sadly. Mulliner, my boy, he said, you know that I look upon you as a son, and that left to my own initiative I would bestow this vacant living on you without a moment's hesitation. But an unforeseen complication has arisen. Unhappy lad, my wife has instructed me to give the post to a cousin of hers. A fellow, the bishop said bitterly, who bleats like a sheep and doesn't know an alb from a ruritus. Augustine, as was only natural, was conscious of a momentary pang of disappointment, but he was a mulliner and a sportsman. Don't give it another thought, Bish, he said cordially. I quite understand. I don't say I hadn't hopes, but no doubt there will be another along in a minute. You know how it is, said the bishop, looking cautiously around to see that the door was closed. It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Proverbs 21.9 A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Proverbs 27.15 Agreed Augustine. Exactly. How well you understand me, Mulliner. Meanwhile, said Augustine, holding up a letter, here's something that calls for attention. It's from a bird by the name of Trevor Entwistle. Indeed, an old schoolfellow of mine. He is now headmaster of Harchester, the foundation at which we both received our early education. What does he say? He wants to know if you'll run down for a few days and unveil a statue which they've just put up to Lord Hemel of Hempstead. Another old schoolfellow. We called him Fatty. There's a postscript over the page. He says he still has a dozen of the 87 port. The bishop pursed his lips. 
these earthly considerations do not weigh with me so much as old cat's meat, as the Reverend Trevor Inwhistle seems to suppose. However, one must not neglect the call of the dear old school. We will certainly go. We? I shall require your company. I think you like Harchester, Mulliner, a noble pile founded by the seventh Henry. I know it well. A young brother of mine is there. Indeed. Dear me, mused the bishop. It must be twenty years and more since I visited Harchester. I shall enjoy seeing the old familiar scenes once again. After all, Mulliner, to whatever eminence we may soar, howsoever great may be the prizes which life has bestowed upon us, we never wholly lose our sentiment for the dear old school. It is our alma mater, Mulliner, the gentle mother that has set our hesitating footsteps on the... Absolutely, said Augustine. And as we grow older, we see that never can we recapture the old, careless gaiety of our school days. Life was not complex then, Mulliner. Life in that halcyon period was free from problems. We were not faced with the necessity of disappointing our friends. Now listen, Bish, said Augustine cheerily. If you're still worrying about that living, forget it. Look at me. I'm quite chirpy, aren't I? The bishop sighed. I wish I had your sunny resilience, Mulliner. How do you manage it? Oh, I keep smiling, and I take the bucca uppo daily. The bucca uppo? It's a tonic my uncle Wilford invented. Works like magic. Well, I must ask you to let me try it one of these days. For somehow, Mulliner, I'm finding life a little gray. What on earth, said the bishop, half to himself and speaking peevishly, they wanted to put up a statued old fatty for, I can't imagine. A fellow who used to throw inked darts at people. However, he continued, abruptly abandoning this train of thought, that's neither here nor there. If the Board of Governors of Harchester College has decided that Lord Hemble of Hempstead has, by his services in the public wheel, earned a statue, it's not for us to cavil. Write to Mr. Entwistle Mulliner and say that I shall be delighted. Although, as he had told Augustine, fully twenty years had passed since his last visit to Harchester, the bishop found, somewhat to his surprise, that little or no alteration had taken place in the grounds, buildings, and personnel of the school. It seemed to him almost precisely the same as it had been on the day forty-three years before, when he had first come there as a new boy. There was the tuck shop, where a lissom stripling with bony elbows he had shoved and pushed so often in order to get near the counter and snaffle a jam sandwich in the eleven o'clock recess. There were the baths, the fives courts, the football fields, the library, the gymnasium, the gravel, the chestnut trees, all just as they had been when the only thing he knew about bishops was that they wore bootlaces in their hats. The sole change that he could see was that on the triangle of turf in front of the library there had been erected a granite pedestal, surmounted by a shapeless something swathed in a large sheet, the statue to Lord Hamill of Hempstead, which he had come to unveil. And gradually, as his visit proceeded, there began to steal over him an emotion which defied analysis. At first he supposed it to be a natural sentimentality. But had it been that, would it not have been a more pleasurable emotion? For his feelings had begun to be far from unmixedly agreeable. 
Once, when rounding a corner, he came upon the captain of football in all his majesty. There had swept over him a hideous blend of fear and shame, which had made his gaiter legs wobble like jellies. The captain of the football doffed his hat respectably, and the feeling passed as quickly as it had come, but not so soon that the bishop had not recognized it. It was exactly the feeling he had been wont to have had forty-odd years ago, when, sneaking softly away from football practice, he had encountered one in authority. The bishop was puzzled. It was as if some fairy had touched him with her wand, sweeping away the ears and making him an inky-faced boy again. Day by day, this illusion grew, the constant society of the Reverend Trevor Entwistle doing much to foster it. For young Catsmeat Entwistle had been the bishop's particular crony at Harchester, and he seemed to have altered his appearance since those days in no way whatsoever. The bishop had had a nasty shock when, entering the headmaster's study on the third morning of his visit, he found him sitting in the headmaster's chair with the headmaster's cap and gown on. It seemed to him that young Catsmeat, in order to indulge his distorted sense of humor, was taking the most frightful risk. Suppose the old man were to come and cop him. Altogether, it was a relief to the bishop when the day of the unveiling arrived. The actual ceremony, however, he found both tedious and irritating. Lord Hemel of Hampstead had not been a favorite of his in their school days, and there was something extremely disagreeable to him in being obliged to roll out sonorous periods in praise. In addition to this, he had suffered from the very start of the proceedings from a bad attack of stage fright. He could not help thinking that he must look the most awful chump standing up there in front of all those people and spouting. He half expected one of the prefects in the audience to step up and clout his head and tell him not to be a funny young swine. However, no disaster of this nature occurred. Indeed, his speech was notably successful. My dear bishop, said old General Bloodenough, the chairman of the College Board of Governors, shaking his hand at the conclusion of the unveiling, your magnificent oration put my own feeble efforts to shame. Put them to shame, to shame. You were outstanding. Well, thanks awfully, mumbled the bishop, blushing and shuffling his feet. The weariness which had come upon the bishop as the result of the prolonged ceremony seemed to grow as the day wore on. By the time he was seated in the headmaster's study after dinner, he was in the grip of a severe headache. The Reverend Trevor Entwistle also appeared jaded. "'These affairs are somewhat fatiguing, Bishop,' he said, stifling a yawn. "'They are indeed, headmaster. Even the eighty-seven port seems an inefficient restorative. Markedly inefficient.' "'I wonder,' said the Bishop, struck with an idea, "'if a little bucka uppo might not alleviate our exhaustion. It's a tonic of some kind which my secretary's in the habit of taking.' It certainly appears to do him good. A livelier, more vigorous young fellow I've never seen. Suppose we ask your butler to go to his room and borrow the bottle? I'm sure he'll be delighted to give it to us. By all means. The butler, dispatched to Augustine's room, returned with a bottle half full of a thick, dark-colored liquid. The bishop examined it thoughtfully. I see there are no directions given as to the requisite dose, he said. However, I do not like to keep disturbing your butler, 
who has now doubtless returned to his pantry and is once more settling down to the enjoyment of a well-earned rest after a day more than ordinarily fraught with toil and anxiety. Suppose we use our own judgment. Certainly. Is it nasty? The bishop licked the cork warily. No, I should not call it nasty. The taste, while individual and distinctive and even striking, is by no means disagreeable. Then let us take a glass full apiece. The bishop filled two portly wine glasses with the fluid, and they sat sipping gravely. It's rather good, said the bishop. Distinctly good, said the headmaster. It sort of sends a kind of glow over you, a noticeable glow. A little more, headmaster? No, I thank you. Oh, come. Well, just a spot, bishop, if you insist. It's rather good, said the bishop. Distinctly good, said the headmaster. Now, you who have listened to the story of Augustine's previous adventures with the Bucca-Uppo are aware that my brother Wilfred invented it primarily with the object of providing Indian rajahs with a specific which would encourage their elephants to face the tiger of the jungle with a jaunty sang-froid. And he had advocated as a medium dose for an adult elephant, a teaspoonful stirred up with its morning bran mash. It's not surprising, therefore, that after they had drunk two wine glassfuls apiece of the mixture, the outlook on life of both the bishop and the headmaster began to undergo a market change. Their fatigue had left them, and with it the depression, which a few moments ago had been weighing on them so heavily. Both were conscious of an extraordinary feeling of good cheer, and the odd illusion of extreme youth, which had been upon the bishop since his arrival at Harchester, was now more pronounced than ever. He felt a youngish and rowdy fifteen. Where does your butler sleep, Catsmeat? he asked, after a thoughtful pause. I don't know. Why? Well, I was only thinking that it would be a lark to go and put a booby trap on his door. The headmaster's eyes glistened. Yes, wouldn't it, he said. They mused for a while. Then the headmaster uttered a deep chuckle. What are you giggling about, said the bishop. I was only thinking what a priceless ass you looked this afternoon, talking all that rot about old fatty. In spite of his cheerfulness, a frown passed over the bishop's fine forehead. It went very much against the grain to speak in terms of eulogy, yes, fulsome eulogy, of one whom we both know to have been a blighter of the worst description. Where does Fatty get off having statues put up to him? Oh, well, he's an empire builder, I suppose, said the headmaster, who was a fair-minded man. Just the sort of thing he would be, grumbled the bishop, shoving himself forward. If ever there was a chap I barred, it was Fatty. Mm, me too, agreed the headmaster. Beastly laugh he'd got, like glue pouring out of a jug. Greedy little beast, if you remember. A fellow in his house told me he once ate three slices of brown boot polish spread on bread after he'd finished the potted meat. Between you and me, I always suspected him of swiping buns at the school shop. I don't wish to make rash charges unsupported by true evidence. But it always seemed to me extremely odd that whatever the time of term it was, and however hard up everybody else might be, 
You never saw Fatty without his bun. Cat's meat, said the bishop. I'll tell you something about Fatty that isn't generally known. In a scrum in the final house match in the year 1888, he deliberately hoofed me on the shin. You don't mean that. I do. Great Scott. An ordinary hack on the shin, said the bishop coldly. No fellow minds. It's part of the give and take of normal social life. But when a bounder deliberately hauls off and lets drive at you with the sole intention of laying you out, it, well, it's a bit thick. And those chumps of governors have put up a statue to him. The bishop leaned forward and lowered his voice. Cat's meat. What? Do you know what? No, what? What we ought to do is wait until 12 o'clock or so, till there's no one about, and beetle out and paint that statue blue. Why not pink? Pink, if you prefer it. Pink's a nice color. It is. Very nice. Besides, I know where I can lay my hands on some pink paint. You do? Gobs of it. Peace beyond thy walls, Catsmeat, and prosperity within thy palaces, said the bishop. Proverbs 131.6 It seemed to the bishop, as he closed the front door noiselessly behind him two hours later, that Providence, always on the side of the just, was extending itself in its efforts to make this little enterprise of his a success. All the conditions were admirable for statue painting. The rain, which had been falling during the evening, had stopped, and a moon, which might have proved an embarrassment, was conveniently hidden behind a bank of clouds. As regarded human interference, they had nothing to alarm them. No place in the world is so deserted as the ground of a school after midnight. Fatty's statue might have been in the middle of the Sahara. They climbed the pedestal, and taking turns fairly with the brush, soon accomplished the task which their sense of duty had indicated to them. It was only when, treading warily lest their steps should be heard on the gravel drive, they again reached the front door that anything occurred to mar the harmony of the proceedings. "'What are you waiting for?' whispered the bishop, as his companion lingered on the top step. "'Half a second, said the headmaster, in a muffled voice. "'It may be in another pocket.' "'What?' "'My key.' "'Have you lost your key?' "'I believe I have.' "'Cat's meat,' said the bishop, with grave censure. This is the last time I come out painting statues with you. Well, I must have dropped it somewhere. What shall we do? There's just a chance the scullery window may be open. But the scullery window was not open. Careful, vigilant, and faithful to his trust, the butler, on retiring to rest, had fastened it and closed the shutters. They were locked out. But it has well been said that it is the lessons which we learn in our boyhood days at school that prepare us for the problems of life in the larger world outside. Stealing back from the mists of the past, there came to the bishop a sudden memory. Cat's meat. Hello. If you haven't been mucking the place up with alterations and improvements, there should be a water pipe round at the back, leading to one of the upstairs windows. Memory had not played him false. There, nestling in the ivy, was the pipe up and down which he had been wont to climb when, a pie-faced lad in the summer of 86, he had broken out of this house in order to take nocturnal swims in the river. Up you go, he said briefly. 
The headmaster required no further urging, and presently the two were making good time up the side of the house. It was just as they reached the window, and just after the bishop had informed his old friend that if he kicked him on the head again he'd hear of it, that the window was suddenly flung open. "'Who's that?' said a clear young voice. The headmaster was frankly taken aback. Dim though the light was, he could see that the man leaning out of the window was poising in readiness a very nasty-looking golf club, and his first impulse was to reveal his identity, and so clear himself of the suspicion of being the marauder for whom he gathered the other had mistaken him. Then there presented themselves to him certain objections to revealing his identity, and he hung there in silence, unable to think of a suitable next move. The bishop was a man of readier resource. Tell him where a couple of cats belonging to the cook, he whispered. It was painful for one of the headmaster's scrupulous rectitude and honesty to stoop to such a falsehood, but it seemed the only course to pursue. It's all right, he said, forcing a note of geniality in his voice. We're a couple of cats. Cat burglars? No, just ordinary cats. Belonging to the cook, prompted the bishop from below. Belonging to the cook, added the headmaster. I see, said the man at the window. Well, in that case, right-ho. He stood aside to allow them to enter. The bishop, an artist at heart, mewed gratefully as he passed to add verisimilitude to the deception, and then made for his bedroom accompanied by the headmaster. The episode was apparently closed. Nevertheless, the headmaster was disturbed by a certain uneasiness. Do you suppose he thought we were really cats? He asked anxiously. I'm not sure, said the bishop, but I think we deceived him by the nonchalance of our demeanor. Yes, I think we did. Who was he? My secretary, the young fellow I was speaking of, who lent us that capital tonic. Oh, then, that's all right. He wouldn't give you away. No, and there's nothing else that could possibly lead to our being suspected. We left no clue whatsoever. All the same, said the headmaster thoughtfully, I'm beginning to wonder whether it was in the best sense of the word judicious to have painted that statue. Somebody had to, said the bishop stoutly. Yes, that's true, said the headmaster. Brightening. The bishop slept late on the following morning and partook of his frugal breakfast in bed. The day, which so often brings remorse, brought none to him. Something attempted, something done, had earned a night's repose, and he had no regrets, except that now that it was all over, he was not sure that blue paint would have been more effective. However, his old friend had pleaded so strongly for the pink that it would have been difficult for himself as a guest to override the wishes of his host. Still, blue would undoubtedly have been very striking. There was a knock on the door, and Augustine entered. Morning, Bush. Good morning, Mulliner, said the bishop affably. I have him somewhat late today. I say, Bish, asked Augustine a little anxiously, did you take a very big dose of the bucca upo last night? Big? No. Uh, as I recall, quite small. Barely two ordinary wine glasses full. Great Scott! Why do you ask, my dear fellow? 
Oh, nothing. No particular reason. I just thought your manner seemed a little strange on the water pipe, that's all. The bishop was conscious of a touch of chagrin. Then you saw through our innocent deception? Yes. I had been taking a little stroll with the headmaster, explained the bishop, and he had mislaid his key. How beautiful is nature at night, Mulliner. The dark, fathomless skies, the little winds that seem to whisper secrets in one's ear, the scent of growing things. Yes, said Augustine. He paused. Rather a row on this morning. Somebody seems to have painted Lord Hemmel of Hempstead's statue last night. Indeed, yes. Ah, well, said the bishop tolerantly. Boys will be boys. It's a most mysterious business. No doubt, no doubt. But after all, Mulliner, is not all life a mystery? And what makes it still more mysterious is that they found your shovel hat on the statue's head. The bishop started up. What? Absolutely. Mulliner, said the bishop, leave me. I have one or two matters on which I wish to meditate. He dressed hastily, his numbed fingers fumbling with his gaiters. It all came back to him now, yes. He could remember putting the hat on the statue's head. It had seemed a good thing to do at the time, and he had done it. How little we guess at the moment how far-reaching our trivial actions might be. The headmaster was over at the school, instructing the sixth form in Greek composition, and he was obliged to wait, chafing, until 12.30, when the bell rang for the halfway halt in the day's work. He stood at the study window, watching with ill-controlled impatience, and presently the headmaster appeared, walking heavily like one on whose mind there is a weight. "'Well?' cried the bishop as he entered the study. The headmaster doffed his cap and gown and sank limply into a chair. "'I cannot conceive,' he groaned, "'what madness had me in its grip last night.' The bishop was shaken, but he could not countenance such an attitude as this. I do not understand you, headmaster, he said stiffly. It was our simple duty as a protest against the undue exaltation of one whom we both know to have been a most unpleasant schoolmate to paint that statue. And I suppose it was your duty to leave your hat on its head? Now there, said the bishop, I may possibly have gone a little too far. He coughed. Has that perhaps somewhat ill-considered action led to the harboring of suspicions by those in authority? They don't know what to think. What is the view of the Board of Governors? They insist on my finding the culprit. Should I fail to do so, they hint at the gravest consequence. You mean they will deprive you of your headmastership? That is what they imply. I shall be asked to hand in my resignation. And if that happens... Bim goes my chance of ever being a bishop. Well, it's not all jam being a bishop. You wouldn't enjoy it, Catsmeat. Well, very well for you to talk, Boko. You got me into this, you silly ass. I like that. You were just as keen on it as I was. You suggested it. Well, you jumped at the suggestion. The two men had faced each other heatedly, and for a moment it seemed as if there was to be a serious falling out. Then the bishop recovered himself. Catsmeat, 
he said with that wonderful smile of his, taking the other's hand, this is unworthy of us. We must not quarrel. We must put our heads together and see if there is not some avenue of escape from the unfortunate position in which, however creditable our motives, we appear to have placed ourselves. How would it be? I thought of that, said the headmaster. It wouldn't do a bit of good. Of course, we might... No, that's no use either, said the bishop. They sat for a while in meditative silence, and as they sat, the door opened. General Bloodenough, announced the butler. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, Psalm 45, 6, muttered the bishop. His desire to be wafted from that spot with all available speed could hardly be considered unreasonable. General Sir Hector Bloodenough, V.C., K-C-I-E, M-V-O, on retiring from the army, had been for many years until his final return to England in charge of the Secret Service in Western Africa, where his unerring acumen had won for him from the natives the sobriquet of Wanabashpagajingo, which freely translated means big chief who can see through the hole in a donut. A man impossible to deceive, the last man the bishop would have wished to be conducting the present investigations. The general stalked into the room. He had keen blue eyes topped by bushy white eyebrows, and the bishop found his gaze far too piercing to be agreeable. Bad business, this, he said. Bad business, bad business. It is indeed, faltered the bishop. Shocking bad business, shocking, shocking. You know what we found on the head of that statue, eh? That statue? That statue? Your hat, Bishop. Your hat. Your hat. The Bishop made an attempt to rally. His mind was in a whirl, for the General's habit of repeating everything three times had the effect on him of making his last night's escapade seem three times as bad. He now saw himself on the verge of standing convicted of having painted three statues with three pots of pink paint and having placed on the head of each one of the trio of shovel hats. But he was a strong man, and he did his best. You say my hat, he retorted with spirit. How do you know it was my hat? There may have been hundreds of bishops dodging around the school grounds last night. Got your name in it. Your name, your name. The bishop clutched at the arm of the chair in which he sat. The general's eyes were piercing him through and through, and every minute he felt more like a sheep that has had the misfortune to encounter a potted meat manufacturer. He was on the point of protesting that the writing in the hat was probably a forgery when there was a tap at the door. Come in, cried the headmaster, who had been cowering in his seat. There entered a small boy in a neaten suit, whose face seemed to the bishop vaguely familiar. It was a face that closely resembled a ripe tomato with a nose stuck on it, but that was not what had struck the bishop. It was of something other than tomatoes that this lad reminded him. Sir, please, sir, said the boy. Yes, 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 said Bloodenough testily. Run away, my boy, run away, run away. Can't you see we're busy? But, sir, please, sir, it's uh, about the statue. What about the statue? What about it? What about it? Sir, please, sir, it was me. What? 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 The bishop, the general, and the headmaster had spoken simultaneously, and the what's had been distributed as follows. 
the bishop one, the general three, the headmaster one, making five in all. Having uttered these ejaculations, they sat staring at the boy who turned a brighter vermilion. What are you saying? cried the headmaster. You painted that statue? Sir, yes, sir. You? said the bishop. Sir, yes, sir. You? 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 said the general. Sir, yes, sir. There was a quivering pause. The bishop looked at the headmaster. The headmaster looked at the bishop. The general looked at the boy. The boy looked at the floor. The general was the first to speak. Monstrous, he exclaimed. Monstrous, monstrous. Never heard of such a thing. This boy must be expelled, headmaster. Expelled. Ex no, said the headmaster in a ringing voice. Then flogged within an inch of his life. Within an inch. Within an inch. No. A strange new dignity seemed to have descended upon the Reverend Trevor in Whistle. He was breathing a little quickly through his nose, and his eyes had assumed a somewhat prawn-like aspect. In matters of school discipline, General, I must, with all deference, claim to be paramount. I will deal with this case as I think best. In my opinion, this is not an occasion for severity. You agree with me, Bishop? The Bishop came to himself with a start. He had been thinking of an article which he had just completed for a leading review on the subject of miracles, and was regretting that the tone he had taken, though in keeping with the trend of modern thought, had been tinged with something approaching skepticism. Oh, entirely, he said. Then all I can say, fumed the general, is that I wash my hands of the whole business, the whole business, the whole business. And if this is the way our boys are being brought up nowadays, no wonder the country is going to the dogs, the dogs, going to the dogs. The door slammed behind him. The headmaster turned to the boy, a kindly, winning smile on his face. No doubt, he said, you now regret this rash act? Sir, yes, sir. And you would not do it again? Sir, no, sir. Then I think, said the headmaster cheerily, that we may deal leniently with what, after all, was but a boyish prank, eh, Bishop? Oh, decidedly, headmaster. Quite the sort of thing <laughs> that you or I might have done uh, er, at his age? Oh, quite. Then you shall write me twenty lines of Virgil, Mulliner, and we will say no more about it. The bishop sprang from his chair. Mulliner? Did you say Mulliner? Yes. I have a secretary of that name. Are you, by any chance, a relation of his, my lad? Sir, yes, sir. Brother. Oh, said the bishop. The bishop found Augustine in the garden, squirting whale oil solution on the rose bushes, for he was an enthusiastic horticulturalist. He placed an affectionate hand on his shoulder. Mulliner, he said, do not think that I have not detected your hidden hand behind this astonishing occurrence. Eh? said Augustine. What astonishing occurrence? As you are aware, Mulliner, last night, from motives which I can assure you were honorable and in accordance with the truest spirit of sound churchmanship, the Reverend Trevor Entwistle and I were compelled to go out and paint old Fatty Hemmel's statue pink. Just now, in the headmaster's study, a boy confessed that he had done it. That boy, Mulliner, was your brother. Oh, yes? It was you who, in order to save me, inspired him to the confession. Do not deny it, Mulliner. Augustine smiled an embarrassed smile. 
It was nothing, Bish. Nothing at all. I trust the matter did not involve you in any too great of an expense. From what I know of brothers, the lad was scarcely likely to have carried through this benevolent ruse for nothing. Oh, just a couple quid. He wanted three, but I beat him down. Preposterous, I mean to say, said Augustine warmly. Three quid for a perfectly simple, easy job like that? So I told him. It shall be returned to you, Moliner. No, no, Bish. Yes, Moliner, it shall be returned to you. I have not the sum on my person, but I will forward you a check to your new address. The Vicarage, Steeple Mummery, Hence. Augustine's eyes filled with sudden tears. He grasped the other's hand. Bish, he said in a choking voice, I don't know how to thank you, but have you considered? Considered? The wife of thy bosom. Deuteronomy 13.6. Well, what will she say when you tell her? The bishop's eyes gleamed with a resolute light. Mulliner, he said, the point you raised had not escaped me, but I have the situation well in hand. A bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Ecclesiastes 10.20. I shall inform her of my decision on the long-distance telephone. End of section 4.